Our guest speaker tonight is Ben Hogan. I've seen his name pop up a couple of different times, and uh, it was through a reference of Jeremy Pate that we learned about Ben, that uh, he came here to speak. He's from Buford and one of the ministers there. Uh, I did ask Jeremy if he would introduce Ben, and he had to be up in the teen class, so he did uh, give me something to read. So Ben, I apologize for whatever he may say off of this, but he said, uh, Ben Hogan is one of my dearest friends and a true brother in Christ. He has a passionate heart for God, the Bible, the church, and lost souls. I've been blessed in countless ways through our relationship, and I can honestly say that he may be one of the kindest and most big-hearted people I've ever known. Over the past several years, it's been my privilege to watch Ben grow from a somewhat stubborn preacher's intern into a truly humble and gifted servant of God. He has a gift for presenting God's Word and an even greater gift for touching people's hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll be blessed to hear Ben preach God's message tonight, and you'll be even more blessed, blessed if you get to know him and his sweet wife, uh, Jensi. In a world where it can be difficult to distinguish between those who are real and those who aren't, it doesn't get any more genuine, pure, and real than my brother, Ben Hogan. So I thought that was very kind words from Jeremy. Uh, and at this time, I'll hand it over to you. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, growing up, I can't even imagine the amount of times that I've heard that passage. I've had that passage preached to me. I've heard it quoted to me. And regardless of how many times we hear that sentiment, uh, that scripture from the hand of Paul, regardless of how many times we hear that, how challenging is it to think about? Asking ourselves the question, are we being conformed to the world or are we being transformed even with the world around us? Regardless of how many times we think about this or whether we have had this passage memorized, it is still a challenge to ask ourselves that question. Am I simply just being like everyone else around me? Am I being just like my friends, just like my coworkers, just like everyone else around me? Or am I allowing what I witness in the world, what I witness from my friends, am I allowing that to transform me into something greater? The question being, am I fitting in or am I sticking out? Am I fitting in or am I sticking out? I mean, have you ever heard the phrase, stick out like a sore thumb? You know, sometimes you hear phrases your whole life, you go somewhere and they've never heard it before. But I feel like this is one of those phrases, one of those statements that all of us have heard before. Stick out like a sore thumb. You know, I was doing some research on what that term, that, 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 that phrase means, and really no one really knows where it originated from. There are many guesses. Obviously, you hit your thumb with a hammer. It hurts. It sticks out. It swells up. You have to put a Band-Aid on it. You wave at people, and all they see is your Band-Aid. Waving them down like a flag, right? That sticks out like a sore thumb, someone says. Perhaps more uh, personally, when you hit your thumb or you hit any of your appendages, 
the thought of how much that hurts and, and, and how much you don't want to be going through the pain everything, every time, everything you touch the rest of the day, right? It sticks out in your brain like a sore thumb. But perhaps for this audience, perhaps for anyone in the state of Alabama, you'll understand this uh, illustration. I want you to imagine the, the, the iron bowl, all right? I'm from Athens, Alabama, uh, up north. I know this is uh, the heart of it, but man, we're pretty rabid up there as well. I'm an Alabama fan. No, I just ostracized myself from half of you, but we're going to press on. I want you to imagine the Iron Bowl, okay? If you've been watching football any time, any length, you know that regardless of the game, regardless of who is playing, regardless of, of what teams are battling against each other, it could be the Iron Bowl, right? Number one versus number two sometimes, not so much anymore. But number one, number two, the winner of this game goes on to the SEC Championship, right? They go on to win and, and, and play this huge playoff game and perhaps win the national championship, right? How many times have you been watching one of these games and perhaps they zoom out on the whole stadium of Bryant-Denny Stadium or, or Jordan-Hare Stadium and they zoom out and there's this bright, ugly, pumpkin-looking, construction worker-looking orange. In the midst of the stands. Y'all know what I'm about to say, right? You zoom out and you see this, this random bright orange dot. And sure enough, by the end of the, tele, the, 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 the telecast, they have already zoomed in on this person. And wouldn't you know it, there is a random Tennessee fan there. I mean, out of nowhere, it's the Iron Bowl. It's the game of games, right? And there's this... Tennessee fan there, and he's sporting his orange, and you're asked, you're you're left to ask the question, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, why why did you come to the Iron Bowl? Why are you at such a big game that has nothing to do with you? Perhaps their their spouse is an Alabama fan or Auburn fan, but sure enough, there they are sporting their big T and they're wearing orange. They, you could say when you look at that, when you look at the stadium, man, they stick out like a sore thumb. You see, this, this phrase is exactly what all of us understand. We understand what it means to stick out like a sore thumb. And our title, our, our lesson tonight is going to be on sticking out. All summer long, you've been engaged in a study uh, I've been looking at on what it means to live as a Christian. Christian living in a virtual world. And tonight, our, our subject is how we can stick out. In this life. How we can stand out. How we can be distinct. How we can be different. Than the world around us. How we can live the Christian life. In the midst of all the chaos that is around us. That we witness on a daily basis. How we can see all of that. And still at the end of the day. Stick out and stand out. And be different. Be distinct from all the world around us. And to accomplish that, to talk about that, we're going to be framing our discussion with two different passages. These characters are related. They're interconnected within the text of Scripture. 
But we're going to be looking at two examples of two men who stood out. They stuck out from among all the others around them, and they, at the time, were the obvious choice for the thing they were being chosen for. Two men who both stood out, but for entirely different reasons. One of them stood out for worldly reasons. Man got uh, uh, human wisdom. And one of them stood out for righteousness, for godly reasons. And tonight we're going to be examining the anointings of King Saul and the anointing of King David as we examine these two men who both stuck out. Our first text is going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 9. As we begin to see how man, how the Israelites wanted to create a king in their own image. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, before we get to chapter 9, we have to understand that Israel has decided that they are completely finished with the, with the form of government that they had as it was. They were done with the judges. They were sick of the judges. They did not feel like it was working out. They were still battling these Philistines. They did not uh, fear Samuel's sons because they were not godly men. They were, the Bible says, taking bribes. They were perverting justice. And so in verse 5 of chapter 8, they begin to beg Samuel to give them a king. They begged Samuel, we need a king to where we can be like all the other nations of the world, to where we can actually go out and win battles, to where we can be like the people around us. All the nations have kings, but we don't. We have these useless judges. That's how they thought. And look at what it says in verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. And so here God understands you know, something that Samuel doesn't understand. Samuel feels like this is a personal attack. He feels like this is on me. This is my fault that they want a king and they don't want the judges anymore. Well, God says no. You're just experiencing what I experience every day. They have not rejected you, Samuel. They have not forsaken you, Samuel. They have forsaken. They have abandoned. They have rejected me as their God. And instead, they want an earthly king. And so he says, do everything that they say. If they want a king, then they can have him. Even though I have done all of these wonderful things for this nation, for my people, if they want an earthly king, then they're going to have to live with this decision. But God tells Samuel to warn the people one more time of what the effects of this decision will be. God says you need to warn them, give them warning sternly, solemnly warn them of what is going to come if they make this decision. Tell them all how their lives is going to be different, how their lives will change under an earthly king. And even after all of that, in the next few verses, in verse 19, 
they still beg for a king. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us. Even after that stern warning, even after describing all the things that would take place, how their lives would be drastically different for the worse, the people still say, give us a king. And so in verse 22, God tells Samuel, and notice the wording here, verse 22, heed their voice and make them a king. And so God tells Samuel, heed their voice, make them a king. Notice, the, remember how he, how he talks about this king versus how he talks about King David in a moment. But here we see God, he says, anoint for them a king as if he does not want anything to do with it anymore. He is fed up. He is done. He has is, is almost washed his hands of this people. He is sick of their lack of faith, their ungratefulness. And so he's going to make them, as we say where I'm from, make their bed and lie in it. You made your bed. Now you're going to have to lie in it. That's what he is saying to Israel with this thought tonight. And that's where our text picks up in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Akorath, the son of Aphiah, and a Benjamite, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so here we see in the text that they have obviously found the perfect match. They have found the perfect king that fits all of the, the, the qualifications that mankind at the time could see. He came from a mighty man of power. So he had this amazing father and he comes from a man who is powerful. So why shouldn't he have power? It says that he was a choice son. That he was handsome. In fact, it doesn't stop at handsome. It says, it was, it says he was handsome. And then it says, in fact, he was more handsome than anyone else in all the land. And as if that wasn't enough, he also is taller than every single man of Israel. In a crowd, if you were to put all the crowds in front of you, you would see Saul's face because he was a head and shoulders above all the other men in Israel. What could we say about King Saul? Wow, right? Wow, look at this guy. Look at this, this image, this model of what a man should be. He, he is beautiful from the face. He, he is someone that we would want to see, want to listen to, want to look at all the time. He, he, has, he commands the power of, of a king and, and the stature that a king would need. He already comes from a, 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 a family of power. Wow. This is our guy. You could also say that he, st he stuck out. He stood out from among all of his contemporaries. No one stood out more than Saul did. 
literally and metaphorically, Saul stood out. There was no other choice to be made. It had to be Saul. It had to be Saul. Saul had to be the next king of Israel. No one in the nation was taller than him. No one in all the nation was more handsome than him. Surely these two things qualify him to be our king, right? Surely that's enough. That's all we need. That's all I need to see. He's handsome and he's tall. So that's exactly what happens. Saul is chosen to be king. He he becomes king. Samuel anoints him. And all the while, God is silently watching this take place. All the while, God is is allowing them to make this decision because they have rejected him. They have forsaken him. And God, knowing full well how it would all turn out, he lets them make this decision. Now fast forward to chapter 10 and verse 17. It is time for Samuel to introduce Saul to all the people. It's time for Samuel to show the people their king that they had asked for, that they had been begging for. It's finally time. They have this king, this earthly representation of a king. And it's time to introduce him to the people. Verse 17. Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and the children and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said to him, no, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Isn't it interesting what God says through Samuel here, through his mouthpiece Samuel, he says, even though I have delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, even though I have set you free from all of your tribulations, all of your trials, all of your adversities, you have still begged for an earthly king instead. Even though I have carried you on my back throughout all of your problems and I've freed you from all of your oppressors, you're still going to beg for this earthly king instead. And let's see what happens. Verse 21. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen and Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? That there is no one like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king! You see the irony here? You see the irony? Here's this king, this this representation of Israel who is supposed to lead them to save them from all the other enemy nations. 
This is the one. This is the best. This is the choice man. This is the one who stood out. And they can't even find him. They can't even find him. He's hidden from among the equipment. And so they can't find Saul, this, this choice man, this perfect man in their eyes. They can't even find him. You know, the irony of them asking, inquiring of God, where is Saul? What, what, where is he? Here they are talking to their former king, God, the father, the creator of the universe. And they say, hey, we know that you're a little bit mad at us for wanting to have a new king. But not only that, we need you to help us find him. Can you imagine the, the tone of God's voice? Here he is booming down from heaven, calling out to them, talking to them. And all they want to know is where this earthly guy is who's stuck with the equipment room. Can you hear God's voice here? There he is. He's over there beside the equipment. That's the one. What a slap in the face this was or had to have been to God. In one corner, you have God. The creator, the sustainer, the, 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 the deliverer, the person who had freed them. And then in the other corner, you have Saul, this flawed man, who we all know what's going to happen to him. And they put all of their eggs in the basket of Saul. The one who is hiding in the equipment. Let's choose that guy. So they run and they grab him. And, and they're so excited about this king. They're so overwhelmed with the thought that this was the savior of the Israelites. Look how tall he is, everybody. Look how handsome he is. Look, this has to be our obvious choice. Let's choose the guy who is taller than any of us and not the God who is greater than any of us. Long live the king, right? Even after God had delivered them, had freed them, had carried them, had done all of the things provided for them, had loved them, they chose Saul, a man, a very flawed human, because he stuck out. He stood out. In their eyes. You see, when we think about standing out, when we think about sticking out, you don't always stick out for good reasons, do you? It could be the case that you stick out, that you stand out for terrible reasons. You stand out from all of your contemporaries, all of your peers, for all of the wrong reasons, and that is exactly what happens to Saul here. Saul stood out, he stuck out for all of the wrong reasons. And it does not take long to realize for the Israelites that beauty and height does not necessarily make the best king. It doesn't take them long to realize that. But they made a king in their image. And by chapter 16, it's time for God to make a king after his own image. In chapter 15 and verse 35, right before chapter 16, we see it says, And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul 
And the Lord regretted that he had made him king over Israel. You see, Saul rejected the word of the Lord when the word of the Lord told him to spare no one. He spared King Agag and some of the choice animals. He did what he wanted to do. And so God rejects Saul because he did not obey his word. And so he regrets that he ever made Saul king, that he ever allowed Samuel to choose Saul. God knew Saul never would measure up. And so Samuel mourns the decision to choose Saul. And so chapter 16, we find Samuel still mourning. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him for reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending to you Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. You see the difference in language here? When we were appointing Saul, when we were anointing King Saul, he says, you choose for yourself a king. You anoint for yourself a king to be over the people of Israel. You choose for yourself. Basically, I don't want anything to do with this. Do you see the difference? In this text, in this instance with David, he says, I have provided for myself a king. You shall anoint the one for whom I have chosen. The one I name to you. You see, this is almost a told you so moment for Israel. I told you this would not be good. I told you that this king would never measure up to me. I told you that you would cry to have me back. But you went through with it anyway. And you chose him anyway. Well, now I'm going to get involved and now it's my turn to choose a king. I have rejected the people's king. And I will establish the king that I have provided, that I have chosen. You guys provided for yourselves a king and we saw how that went. And now it's my turn. You shall anoint for me. And when it was Samuel's time to anoint Saul, he told him to anoint Saul for the people. This time it's for him. And the text continues in verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. You see what's about to take place here is a runway model show of what's about to happen with these kings. All these brothers, all these sons of Jesse, they're about to run them through in front of Samuel and Samuel's going to have to choose which one he thinks is going to be the best king. With his human eyes, he is going to have to choose who will be the best king. In the back of Samuel's mind, you know he's got the same criteria he did last time. 
He's going to be judging the sons of Jesse on who is the best looking. On who is the tallest. On who is the most outwardly attractive son of Jesse. We'll see what happens in verse 6 through 10. Now it was when they came that he, that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Samuel goes one by one through the sons of Jesse. He says, Samuel, what about Eliab? Look at Eliab. Surely, even Samuel says it, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Nope. Well, all right. Well, here's Abinadab. What about Abinadab? Surely this one is the one. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. Nope. Well, all right. Okay, all right. Well, we got Shema. What about Shema? What do you think about Shema? Nope. What about these others? Any of them? Nope. Jesse must be thinking to himself, well, what, what, what does this mean, Samuel? I've shown you all of my sons except for the youngest one, but surely not. The... That's exactly what happens. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. All of these brothers, all of the power, the, the, the soldiers that we find out they are in the next chapter, the tallest, the, the, the most attractive looking, perhaps the oldest, none of them are chosen. We're going to choose the runt of the litter. He is ruddy. He has bright eyes. He's good looking, but he's a child compared to these other mighty men. Are you sure you don't want Eliab? Abinadab? No. Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And the text says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. You see, David stuck out. David stood out. Out of all the, all, all the sons of Jesse, David was the one that God wanted. And David alone. God did not want the tallest. He did not want the most handsome. He did not want the oldest. Because this time God was choosing the king and he realized that those were none, not real qualifications. None of the outward things mattered. 
What did matter was what stuck out about David when he looked at him. And we don't have to guess what that is. We don't have to contemplate what stuck out to God. Because the text tells us in verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, David stuck out for the right reasons. David stuck out. He stood out from all the other sons of Jesse because of the heart that he possessed. The heart that would one day be related to God's own heart. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, it says, and when he had removed, he's talking about this story, Acts 13, 22, and when he removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony, saying, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. You see, to God it did not matter how handsome David was, how tall he was, how strong he was, because God knew David's heart was an obedient one. And that's all that mattered. God knew that David would have the humility to submit to him. God knew that David had the heart that would be penitent if he ever did mess up. And boy, did he mess up. God knew David's heart would be the heart that could lead Israel. David stuck out from all the sons of Jesse. But unlike Saul, he stuck out for the right reasons. You see, when we think about Saul, was it his fault that he was tall? Was it Saul's fault that he was taller than everybody else? Nope. Was it his fault that he was more handsome than everyone else? That when he looked upon him, that this was the Hollywood choice, right? This one is the one. Was it his fault? Did he do anything to become that way? No. It's not his fault. The same way none of us can control what we look like for the most part. Right? Saul could not control what he looked like. How tall he was, how handsome he was, he couldn't control that. But guess what he could control? The same thing David could control, his heart. And God knew that Saul did not have the heart of David. God did not dislike Saul because of his outward appearance. That would be foolish to think. God made Saul. What God knew was lacking was Saul's heart. And it wasn't where it needed to be. He knew the challenges of of what the king of Israel would bring. And God knew Saul was simply not the man for the job. And when you look at both of these men, both Saul and David, they both stood out. They both were chosen because they stuck out. The nation of Israel chose Saul because he stood out in their eyes with the qualifications they had. And God chose David because he stood out above all the other sons of Jesse. But only one of these was chosen for the right reasons. Only one of these stuck out in the way that matters. David. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The question tonight is, in what way do you stick out? In your life, every single day, as you live the Christian life, Christian living, right? When you live your life and the decisions you make and the actions you take and the steps that you take, are you sticking out for the right reason? Are you like Saul who was literally formed, conformed into the perfect image of worldly wisdom? Or are you transformed like David who then proved what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? That's the question for us tonight. Perhaps another question could be if all of us were allowed to go back in time and be there at this moment when God was choosing for Himself a new leader, would He have chosen you? Would He look at all of the things around And say that one because they have the heart that I'm looking for. Maybe you're thinking here tonight, well, maybe I'm just a liab or a Benedict, right? I wasn't chosen by the people, I wasn't chosen by God, I just kind of fit in, right? If I just fly under the radar and and no one notices me, I I don't really need to stick out. I'm not going to be picked on 3,000 years later for my flaws like we're doing with Salt Night, right? If I just fit in and, and I just fly under the radar, none of that will happen to me. I don't need to stick out. I don't need to be different. What I need to do is blend in. I need to fit in. I need to be just like everyone else around me and maybe, just maybe, I can sneak by unnoticed. And so when I'm on social media and I'm in the virtual world that has been given to me and I'm living my life with all of the media around me in this virtual world, when I see Christians arguing over politics, when I see Christians marring the name of the church, when I see the sleeves roll back in the comment section, I'm going to start throwing some hands too. I'm going to start throwing punches right along with them because I need to fit in. I need to be just like the people around me. I'm going to join in and I'm definitely going to throw my two cents in. When I see a president become president that I don't like, that I don't agree with, I'm going to be just like everyone else on my social media and forget where my true citizenship lies. In heaven. And who my real king is, and that is God. I just need to fit in and be like everyone else and be like all of my friends. And so when I see my friends post pictures of themselves half naked at the beach, then I need to do that same thing. Because I need to be just like my friends. And when I see my friends promote things that are obviously against the will of God, then I need to do that too, right? Because it's easier for me to blend in than it is for me to stand out. I'm either going to be silent when I see these things or I'm going to join in myself. 
Because I don't want to be different than everyone else around me. I, I don't have any need to be distinct. I'm just going to be conformed, not transformed. I'm going to be just like the image of everyone else around me. If you'll forgive me, we're going to go through a bunch of texts here if you want to write them down. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. James chapter 4 and verse 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, Do not love the world, neither the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Romans chapter 1 and verse 32, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Lastly, John 15 and verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Does this sound like Christians are to be the people that blend in? The people that just fit in and fly under the radar and are undetected by the other people around them? Or does it seem like we are to be the people who stand out? Who stick out from among all of our contemporaries and our peers? Brethren, we don't have a choice of whether to stick out or not. We are commanded to. We are commanded to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people to proclaim the praises of Him who called us out of darkness and into light. 1 Peter 2. We are commanded to become blameless, to become harmless in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We are to be lights to that perverse and crooked people. We are told that if we want to blend in with the world, we are becoming friends with that world. And if we are friends with the world, we are enemies of God. We know that the love of God cannot be in us if we love the world. And if we love the things that we're not supposed to love. If we love, if we support the different things that sin is practicing in our friend's life. We're not to approve of it either, Romans 1. If we approve of it, if we in the virtual world press like, if we react with a heart on the thing that God abhors, then what are we doing? 
We're disrespecting God. We know that we cannot serve two masters, and we know that Christians should be suffering persecution, and we know the world is supposed to hate us. But even with all of that knowledge, we find ourselves teetering over this line. I've got one foot in Christ, one foot in the church, one foot in the word, and I've got one foot out of Christ, out of the church, out of the word. And that's simply not acceptable in the sight of God. What did Jesus say about the lukewarm person? Somebody said it. Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 3 tells us that the church of Laodicea were neither hot nor they were, were, were they cold. They weren't hot, they weren't on fire for God, and they also weren't cold. They were kind of in the middle. They were caught in this middle. They were trying to blend in. They were trying to just do a mediocre job. Jesus says, I will vomit you. I will spew you out of my mouth. You're no good to me if you're neither hot or cold. Paul would even say, what fellowship has light with darkness in 2 Corinthians chapter 6? Elijah would say in 1 Kings chapter 18, how long will you falter between two opinions, brethren, if we are going to live as Christ would have us? then we're going to have to stick out from the people around us. You can stick out for the wrong reasons like Saul. You can choose not to stick out at all. Or you can stick out like David. What will it be? We're dismissed until our next uh, time of invitation. Thank you.